Just days into 2022, EPA announced unprecedented changes to crop protection policy that could have big impacts on farmers' plans for the 2022 season. How are producers adapting to the new status quo? That's today on Field Posts. progressive farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Dicamba has been at the center of pesticide controversy for years, and though EPA says they don't expect to be able to make additional label changes before the 2022 season, a recent analysis they published might have changed the stakes in a pending lawsuit that could cause some mid-season disruptions. On top of that, EPA also announced in January changes to their strategy for enforcing the Endangered Species Act, which is already riling the ag and environmental communities over county-level restrictions. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today for a deep dive on Dicamba News to Watch, what's next for chemicals like Enlist, and who to consult for information about how your labels might have changed. We'll discuss the alternatives for the 2022 season and what might lie ahead for producers looking to avoid such surprises in the future, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN staff reporter Emily Unglesby joins us today, fresh off a public hearing at EPA, to discuss some of its latest updates. Emily, we've been watching the dicamba story, it feels like, for years at this point, but we have a couple of updates. Talk to us about kind of the top line. Where is the dicamba discussion going into the 2022 season? So that is a good question with a complicated answer. The The short answer is EPA has said that it found a lot of damage last year despite its label changes, and they're not happy about that. But they also have stated that they don't think they can make any label changes or any major changes to the dicamba registration before this 2022 spray season. So on one side of the equation, it looks like farmers will be free to spray dicamba according to the labels, the 2020 labels this year. But there is another shoe that could drop, and that goes back to this federal lawsuit that was filed two years ago over the 2020 dicamba registration. And that lawsuit got tied up in some jurisdiction issues. And right now, Courts are still trying to figure out if it belongs in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or if it should be decided in the District Court of Arizona. But 
While the courts were trying to figure that out, EPA published this report in December detailing a lot of dicamba damage last year and essentially stating quite upfront that they don't believe the 2020 labels fixed the dicamba off-target damage issue. And that's a pretty big admission from the agency because in some ways it, it agrees with the plaintiffs who are suing them asking federal courts to vacate the 2020 dicamba registrations. So as we expected and predicted in our coverage, the environmental groups, namely the Center for Food Safety and the Center for Biological Diversity, seized on this report, took it to a judge in the U.S. District Court for Arizona, and basically said, we understand that our case is stayed while you figure out whose jurisdiction it's in. But we want you to lift that stay because this document makes the danger to the environment from dicamba really imminent and EPA is admitting it. And we think you need to lift the stay and move forward with the case and vacate the registrations. So that's where we sit right now. A judge has this motion to lift the stay and rule on the case. EPA obviously is asking that the judge not do that. Agrochemical companies, Bayer and BASF, have also chimed in and said, we think that you should keep this case stable. But we don't know what the judge will ultimately decide. And that is going to hang over farmers' heads this season because there is a small chance, and I think it is very small because court cases simply don't move very fast, that the dicamba registration could get vacated again. Could it happen in 2022? I think that's a slim chance, but it's out there. So the dicamba situation remains pretty complicated. And I think farmers are just going to have to live with that uncertainty for this season. Yeah, that sounds tremendously complicated. And I'm curious what, from your perspective, that might mean for farmers. Should folks be worried that they might have already bought seed or already bought chemical that they might not be able to use? How, how high do you think the risk of that is at this point? I think it is a very low risk, but with a very low risk of a very large disruption to farmers with extend seed. Because the risk of a judge vacating those registrations this year, I do believe, remains small just because of the time it takes for this these court cases to get hearings scheduled and, and for judges to actually make rulings. But if it happened, the disruption would be enormous, just as it was in 2020 when a federal court vacated three dicamba over-the-top registrations. So again, low risk of it, low probability, high disruption if it did occur because it would take dicamba out of the hands of farmers who have planted seeds already bought at that, maybe already planted, maybe crops are already in the fields growing, that they can suddenly not spray with dicamba. I'm curious as you look to you know, the future, eventually this lawsuit, one assumes, will get figured out, whether or not it's during the season or after this season. Um, what will you be watching from EPA in terms of updates on this decision-making or uh, how this might evolve as the season progresses and then looking ahead to maybe 2023? It's a good question. And EPA is kind of another wild card in this situation. Yes, they have stated that they don't have the ability to make substantial changes to dicamba use for this season. But the underlying implication there was that they could and, and might for future seasons. The EPA report that the agency published in December was pretty damning for dicamba. The agency expressed very clear dissatisfaction with the level 
of injury complaints and with the fact that their 2020 labels didn't seem to have fixed things substantially. So I, I think EPA is not happy with dicamba's performance. And I think it is a, a very likely possibility that in future years, if this federal court case doesn't vacate the registrations, that EPA would go ahead and make substantial changes to dicamba use moving forward beyond this season. So it's really a question of who's going to act first. Will a federal judge act first or will the EPA? But I do think dicamba use will change under this EPA this in the next couple of years. Well, and there's a, a third actor in there, which you mentioned a little bit about how the companies, the manufacturers of dicamba are responding. We've in the past watched them make some moves around, you know, rolling back recommended use and sales and availability. Any kind of word from them or signals from them that the companies themselves might be thinking about making some changes to preempt an EPA move or what's happening in the courts? So we have heard via some EPA comments that the agrochemical companies, particularly Bayer and BASF, might have offered EPA some voluntary label changes as a way to keep dicamba on the market. But we don't know what those label changes were. It doesn't look like EPA took them up on it for at least this season. So that's really kind of a gray area that we don't have much information on. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the other piece of um, news that's come out on the pesticide use front, and that has to do with the Endangered Species Act. Tell us a little bit about your reporting there and what you're hearing in terms of what's going on with the interaction between EPA, the enforcement of this law, and how farmers can use pesticides. Yes. So the Endangered Species Act, this has sort of been a slow moving train coming towards agriculture for several years now. It actually dates back to the 70s. So the Endangered Species Act was passed just three years after EPA was founded. And the act states that all federal agencies, any federal agency whose actions might affect the environment, they have to consider what those actions would mean for endangered species or threatened species and the critical habitats that they live in. EPA really hasn't been in fully complying with this federal statute for decades. And it's only recently that the agency has started to try to put in place protocols to actually follow the Endangered Species Act. And not to be too cynical, but it appears that the main motivation for them to do this has been the fact that not complying with a federal statute like the Endangered Species Act has left them very vulnerable to lawsuits. So it has been an easy way for environmental groups who are concerned about pesticides to successfully sue the agency because they can always say with great legitimacy that EPA is not following the law in this pesticide registration. So it, ha it has been an avenue for them to sue them sometimes successfully. So EPA is basically trying to shut off that avenue. If they can show that they're making good faith efforts to protect endangered species with each new pesticide registration, they will really shut off that avenue. Not completely, but it's a lot harder for an environmental group to argue with actions that the agency has taken to comply than it was for them to sue the agency for doing nothing to protect endangered species. So it will just make it more difficult. So in some ways, for the agrochemical industry and for farmers, 
EPA now complying with this statute could help bring a little bit more certainty to their pesticide use because they maybe don't have to worry about pesticide registrations getting changed or vacated or challenged in the court system. However, these endangered species, there's 1,800 listed species. They're plants, they're animals, they're insects, and they are all across the country. And their statuses are frequently changing. They're moving from threatened to endangered, from endangered back to threatened. They're getting removed. New species are getting put on the list. So it's very much a moving target for the agency. And it does mean that every time they consider a new pesticide or re-register an old pesticide, that they are going to be looking at all of these species, where their critical habitats are, trying to figure out which ones might be likely to be adversely affected. They will issue this biological evaluation for each active ingredient and say, we think based on our analysis of the endangered species list that this number of species could likely be adversely affected. And then they pass that evaluation on to what's called the services the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the National Marine Fisheries Service. Those two groups come up with something called a biological opinion, where they decide whether or not that new pesticide registration will cause, quote-unquote, jeopardy to a listed species or adverse modification of their critical habitat. If the services determine that is possible, for a listed species, they propose these reasonable and prudent alternatives, which are label measures that could reduce the risk from that pesticide to that listed species. The problem is that the agencies and the services have never really done this in the past. So they are trying to figure out what do those label measures look like? How extreme do we have to be to protect these listed species? And what the Enlist registration, which was released on January 11th, did was give agriculture a surprise preview of what these new pesticide registrations will look like after they've gone through this process, this endangered species evaluation. And two big things we saw on the Enlist labels that surprised people were county-level prohibitions, so saying you simply cannot use this product in this many counties because there is somewhere in that county a listed species lives there or its habitat is there. So that caused a big problem with the Enlist herbicides because nobody had any warning that was coming. Corteva says they don't. There's some evidence they knew it was a possibility, but they thought that they could get those counties back on the label. And farmers in those counties are really reeling from that. So that's going to have a big ag impact, especially if it happens on future labels for other chemicals. The other label restrictions we saw that were targeted towards endangered species were new measures trying to help farmers reduce the runoff, so water contaminated with pesticide residues from their fields, and limit spray drift. And those, I think, farmers will find much less onerous. In particular, this new measure where they give farmers a list of ways to prevent runoff and say, okay, here's five ways you could do it buffers, a tree line, just all these different methods. And then farmers pick which ones work for their operation. It's called a pick list. So those are the two big things that EPA is doing right now to comply with the Endangered Species Act based on the Enlist registration. 
I think that the county level prohibitions are the most disruptive to agriculture, but they are also the ones that I think might be the most likely to get changed moving forward. So yesterday, EPA held a very long two-hour webinar where members of the public could tell them in a couple minutes what they thought of the Endangered Species Act evaluations and what they needed from the agency as the agency tries to figure out how to do this with new pesticide registrations. And we saw some farmers on there. We saw some environmental groups. We saw experts like weed scientists. We saw entomologists. It was a really interesting mix of people and a common theme that emerged and was stated over and over by members from agricultural stakeholders was that the county level prohibitions are too extreme. They ban use for many dozens of square miles because a listed species occurs on a few acres in a certain area. And as one farmer put it, this really hurts EPA because it makes farmers not take the Endangered Species Act seriously. It creates resentment, knowing that they're, they're, they're being limited using a herbicide that really wouldn't hurt anyone in the field that they're spraying it on because 16 miles away, there's a critical habitat. Interestingly enough, some environmental groups made similar comments and urged the EPA to make those prohibitions more specific, to do the surveys needed to find out, to map where these endangered species truly are living and the habitats where they really need to be protected and, and only limit spraying in those locations. So I thought it was interesting that you had people from all across the ag pesticide environment spectrum agreeing that EPA's county level prohibitions were too crude and not a smart way to implement the Endangered Species Act. So I do think that EPA heard that, and I, I think maybe they will work to change that as a result. That's so interesting, especially because one could imagine just because a critical habitat exists in one county, that doesn't mean it's not near enough to another county that a county that is not restricted could actually have more of an impact than some right. farmers in the county that has the restrictions. In fact, as one Oklahoma farmer I spoke to who's facing one of these county prohibitions for the enlist herbicides pointed out animals and insects don't follow county maps. They, they aren't aware of these lines. They're meaningless on a biological level. We, re, we need real maps that actually follow their geographic range and not politically created boundaries. It doesn't make sense to use those. I'm curious if EPA, either on the webinar or in recent announcements, has talked at all about, are they planning to increase enforcement or how are they planning to control where these chemicals are used, how they're being used, if they're adding all these additional kind of rules and regulations around their use? That is an excellent question. And the, the short answer is that EPA itself won't do much. The actual enforcement of pesticide labels falls almost exclusively to state regulatory agencies, the state pesticide regulators. And they, uh, a couple of them were on that webinar yesterday and made the same point that you are adding pretty onerous label restrictions, but we're the ones who have to enforce it. And our resources haven't changed. And in fact, one of the state lead agencies, I believe it was from South Dakota, said, please include us in the consultations when you're considering 
what new measures to take to protect endangered species, you need to loop state pesticide agencies who are actually going to be the ones out there trying to enforce it, trying to find out if someone violated it. You need to include us in the conversation. We can help you know whether or not these label measures are enforceable or if you guys are just checking a box that won't actually protect anything. You've talked to some farmers who have been directly impacted. I'm curious what you're hearing from them, how they're planning to cope with these changes. Is there any recourse that farmers in these who just found out in the last few weeks that maybe chemical or seed that they've you know already purchased is they're not going to be able to use this year? So, so far, and, and this is still pretty fresh, so on, on, just to back up, on That's January okay. 11th, EPA released the new labels for the Enlist herbicides, which go along with the Enlist crops, Enlist soybeans, corn, and cotton, which tolerate their 2,4-D choline uh, product, Corteva AgriSciences. And the labels took everybody off guard because they did include prohibitions on the use of Enlist in 200 odd counties in the country. Now, these counties aren't large soybean producers. It's true. But there are farmers in them there who, who really rely on soybeans, and that's primarily the crop that was affected, or cotton, to in their rotations and to make money. So these farmers found themselves literally overnight without a post-emergent 2,4-D option to spray in their fields, which they had paid for when they bought these their Enlist seed in the fall. So right now, they don't, we don't know what their recourse is. Corteva AgriScience is obviously aware of the situation. Anybody who sells seed is aware of the situation. And I think a lot of farmers are trying to do the math on what their options are. And we actually did a story last week reminding farmers what their weed control options are if they can't use that post-emergence option of 2,4-D choline. And it's a real problem because it's putting a lot of pressure on the other post-emergent option that farmers have, both ExtendFlex farmers and the Enlist farmers, which is glufosinate, Liberty, which is in incredibly short supply and extremely expensive to buy if you can find it right now. So farmers are facing a double whammy. They've lost the 2,4-D option. Many of them can't use dicamba in their counties, either because the labels don't work for them or because they have simply decided that the cutoff dates or the product is too volatile, they can't find someone to spray it. So there's a reason they moved to the 2,4-D tolerant cropping system. And that leaves glufosinate, which is also hard to find. So Honestly, these farmers are in a tough spot and they don't have any easy solutions. They're going to have to decide between switching to a different weed control platform or just making do with the post-emergence options that they have, glyphosate and glufosinate, or switching to corn, um, which is another possibility, switching to a different crop entirely. And those decisions, unfortunately, are going to have to be made in the next month or two. But we have not, I have not heard that Corteva will be offering them any particular financial recourse yet. I think a lot of that is still getting sorted out within the companies and the seed dealers. We'll be watching that closely. I would expect that, yeah, there will be some updates about that in the next few months as we get into the season. But I'm curious for folks who are thinking about other ways that this might impact as EPA moves into 
reevaluating new labels or other labels that they have. What should folks be keeping an eye on as we get into the season? And do you expect more surprises, more changes to be coming as EPA starts to implement this new policy? Yes, I do. And I think that the things to watch are the herbicides that are currently making their way through the biological evaluations and the biological opinions that will determine if there's any label changes for endangered species. So those are glyphosate, which is obviously a major player in the ag chem market, atrazine, and the neonicotinoids. Those are the big ones that farmers use regularly that are currently undergoing biological opinions. So for most of them, EPA has already conducted these biological evaluations. And because the trigger to find whether or not they're likely to adversely affect a endangered species is is pretty low, those biological evaluations determined that for glyphosate, for atrazine, for the neonicotinoids, they were likely to adversely affect a large number of species, which looks dire. But now the services will examine those evaluations, examine those species and their habitats, and they will come back with most likely more conservative biological opinions on how label, what label measures can be taken to sort of reduce the risk of these products to the various endangered species. And that's probably going to happen in the next year. So that's really something that we need to watch. I know that the agency is expecting to finalize their biological evaluations for neonicotinoids this year. I know that they've already handed their biological evaluation of glyphosate and atrazine over to the services. So we could see biological opinions on them in the coming months with their label recommendations. So there there will be a lot coming in this year in 2022 and 2023, and we will be writing about it. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And I'm curious, from farmers you've talked with, are folks starting to think about as there's just so much uncertainty around labels, around new chemicals, around resistance and things with existing crop protection options, how are people starting to think about maybe changing their um, strategy or, or making a more responsive strategy to be able to deal with just all this uncertainty that seems to be growing year after year? Yes, it's a good question. And I do think that farmers are starting to see the writing on the wall. And in their defense, a lot of them have already started trying to make changes to get away from chemical-only control of pests like insects and weeds. Um, But it's a hard process. And farmers need a lot of research on their other options. And the weed scientists, the entomologists, the plant pathologists have been doing a lot of work in the past decade trying to explore how other non-chemical options to control pests like cover crops, how they work, how farmers can add them to their operation. Because those changes sound very simple to to somebody who's writing it out in a federal office somewhere, but on the ground, they're very difficult to implement. It's hard to know what will work for your operation. You have to fail sometimes and lose money to figure it out. I do think that the change is underway and that some farmers are starting to truly integrate their weed and pest management to include non-chemical options, but it, it is a hard road. And I think that it is one that eventually all farmers are going to have to trod because the the writing is, is on the wall between the biological problems with insect and weed resistance and the regulatory pressures on EPA to 
make these pesticide registrations more restrictive. I, I just think that chemical use alone is not a viable pest control option anymore and, and really won't be in the decade to come. Just one last question for folks who are either in the midst of a, a season, maybe trying out new crop protection tools or watching this news play out either on the dicamba front or on the ESA front with chemicals like Enlist and just don't know, who should farmers be in contact with to make sure they know how their labels are changing, how they should be shifting plants for potentially even this season in terms of making sure they're like in compliance with all the new label changes that have been coming out? It's a good question. I know that a lot of extension offices have worked pretty hard to get the word out. For example, when those enlist registrations came down, several of the farmers I spoke to had learned that their county was on the list because an extension weed scientist from their their local university had reached out and alerted them to that situation. So those extension weed scientists, those extension scientists are always paying attention to things like this. Your state department of agriculture is also, of course, who is tasked with enforcing the labels, is usually go- is always going to have the most up-to-date information on what you can do legally in your state. So they're always a good resource. And selfishly, I would also say DTMPF.com is it we really work hard to stay on top of state by state changes for sort of high attention high focus chemicals like dicamba like 24D like glyphosate so it, if there are changes we try to collate them put them together in a story and get them out to farmers before the spring spray season You can read all of the stories Emily mentioned and stay up to date on all things dicamba and crop protection at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer Magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Emily Unglesby. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.